This is not a preemption issue. The bead language precludes states from making local governments ineligible and not just local governments. It co-ops, private companies. There's a whole list. You can't make any of them ineligible. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And before we dig into this week's interview, I did want to remind people that we have several other podcasts. Uh, Listeners of this show may be interested in the Connect This show. I did that wrong. I always do that wrong. Connect This. And uh, that is on Thursdays regularly, but you can find it at connectthisshow.com. And uh, we have other podcasts from uh, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance's other programs, including um, Building Local Power, uh, Local Energy Rules, and occasionally some composting podcasts. So I uh, would encourage people to check out ILSR.org. Now, today, we are talking with Nancy Werner, who is the Natoa General Counsel. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Natoa was um, has always been something that is very special to me because uh, it was the first organization I joined uh, getting into this work, and uh, and they made it easy for someone that was on a very tight, small budget. Um, but for people who don't immediately know what those five letters mean, uh, it's one of the best acronyms because it explodes into a very long <laughs> acronym. It, it is a long title. We, we are officially the National Association of Telecommunications Officers and Advisors, which is long. And every time I have to explain that, like at a conference when I'm speaking, I'm like, okay, hold on, everybody. It's going to take a minute while I tell you our name. That's why we go by NATOA. But um, I really appreciate your comments because I do. I totally agree with you. That's what our organization does. It's, a, it's an inexpensive way to get involved in an organization that's going to help you stay on top of and and learn if you don't know already communications issues that impact local government. So our name is actually, I mean, it's long, but it's, it's descriptive. (laughs) Our members are um, officers and advisors. So local government officials and staff and the people who advise local government officials and staff on communications issues. That's what we do. Um, So we provide resources to members. Like, I think that's what you're referring to. A lot of people join our organization when they first start working for like a city and they're like, I don't know what a franchise is. You know, we'll help you out with that. Um, Then we also stay on top of all the issues at the FCC and Congress. Um, and advocate on behalf of local governments on those issues. We'll file with the FCC. We get involved in some litigation, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I recall when uh, one of the major cable companies was going to start charging people a fee to pay their bills in cash, like Natoa was there. Uh, a lot of times I feel like on the Natoa listserv, you see things early where someone's like, you know, our franchise, uh, our franchisee wants to do this thing. Has anyone heard of this? And you sort of see these things percolating around that way. Right. Absolutely. Yes. I, I've heard people, you know, listservs, aren't those old? Maybe, but they are so effective. It is such an easy way for people. It comes into your inbox and says, hey, you might be want to be on the lookout for your cable operator doing this. So the biggest question I always have is, is, is it advisors with an O or advisors with an E at the end? With an O. Okay. I got to remember that. No. <laughs> We have three subjects we're going to talk about today, and the first one is BEAD, uh, the program from NTIA, from the uh, IIJA, the um, the infrastructure bill. Uh, then we're going to talk about uh, municipal broadband and and what to do about states that are not following congressional um, dictate 
um, in terms of, of making sure that all entities can be eligible for funds. And then we're going to talk about franchise fee issues. Um, so let's dive into uh, BEAD. And we're going to talk about a specific provision that you and I were talking about at National League of Cities, uh, trying to get a sense of how this is going to play out. But, but as a quick reminder, what is BEAD? Well, see, I was going to ask you. You asked me what my acronym was. What's BEAD? Broadband Equity Access and Deployment. I think I have that right. Um, yep. <laughs> you got it. I, I wouldn't have even had it. I just gave up on remembering what that one was. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. But, you know, for the listeners out there who don't know what BEAT is, it mm-hmm. is a it is a, a pot, a big pot of money. Um, help me out on the money. Forty five million. Forty two and a half. One? I was close. Forty two and a half billion. I said million billion um, that the infrastructure law allocates to um, eligible entities, which are basically states. It's also territories. But, you know, I'm going to focus on states today to give out as grants. So the NTIA will be administering these. They will give the grant money to states and then states in turn have to give them out as that money out as grants to other recipients um, to engage in broadband related issues. And if you read this, they are the sub grantees. The sub grantee comes up a lot, I think. Yes. Yes. So the state is the grantee, meaning they got the federal funds, but the people actually taking the money and spending it to deploy broadband or whatever the, the project is, those are the sub grantees. That's right. Right. So there's a whole bunch of money. Most of it's going to go to areas that are um, in more rural areas, we presume, because it's areas that don't have the 25 megabits down, three megabits up. Uh, But what we wanted to talk about is um, two aspects of this. Uh, The first one is this issue of the multifamily uh, buildings and those that have high poverty, because that is uh, an area in which the money can be spent. Uh, and it, But there is some disagreement. And I like to say there are, there are people that I trust to read law well who have equally high confidence that <laughs> this says two separate things. And the question is whether a state has to spend all of the money into areas that don't have 25-3 before they begin spending any money on multifamily dwelling units that have a lot of poverty in them. My opinion on this is that they do not. I, you know, people maybe don't want to hear the, the numbers or the letters of the statute, but there's a subsection F entitled use of funds, and it lists six potential uses of funds, five substantive ones. And then the sixth is anything NTIA adds as a necessary um, use to achieve the purposes of the act. So, you know, one of those uses under subsection F is unserved and underserved service projects, which are basically the deployment projects, which are defined with respect to um, access to 25.3 or 120 currently. Um, then it goes on. You can use the funds for that and or community anchor institutions and or planning type projects and or these multifamily um, building situation that you were talking about. And then the fifth one is um, other deployment type uh, access type projects like giving out computers, Mm -hmm. things like that. So there's a variety of uses and I do not read them as being, you know, subject to any kind of a um, prioritization. What is subject to prioritization? As I mentioned, one of the uses is these unserved and underserved service projects under F1. There's another subsection H that says if you're using the money under F1, then you have to prioritize the funding for unserved areas first, then underserved areas, then community anchor institutions that fit a certain definition. So in other words, they've got a whole bunch of uses of the funds, not a whole bunch, five, unless NTIA sets up more. 
under one of those uses for deployment, you have to prioritize unserved and underserved and community anchor institutions. Right. Because just to be very clear there, like you said, there's five uses. One of those uses includes both underserved and unserved. And there is no doubt in anyone's mind that underserved can only come about after you have certified that all the unserved areas are met. Absolutely. So that's that's true. I think part of the issue here is that the way this was presented in the media, I'm not blaming the media. I, I think this is kind of the I'll way Congress the wanted it to be. That. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> this is the way the people who, who voted for this wanted it to be presented, which mm-hmm. is we're serving the unserved. Mostly these these rural areas that have lacked service and um, we want them to have service. But when you actually look at the bill, there are more uses and the prioritization. So, again, it is a little confusing because one of the uses is unserved and underserved service projects. So to do those, you have to fit the unserved and underserved definition. But if you're operating under that subsection, then you also have to prioritize unserved, underserved and community anchor institutions before you can do anything else for deployment projects. So there is a specific prioritization that applies to a specific use of the funds, not all of them. Raise your hand if you don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see any hands up. I think we're good. I think think we're great. And this is important because this is a question of whether we are going to spend all of this money um, or the vast majority of this money in areas um, that are um, and more rural in nature, uh, or if we're going to be able to spend any money in urban areas. And and that's important because we have spent so much money in rural areas and we need to spend more. I'm a huge proponent of making sure we get this done. But it, it is incontrovertible that we have neglected the many more millions of people in urban areas. And this is a time to make sure that we are not uh, just uh, picking one or the other. And states should be able to be empowered to this. Frankly, I'd like to see the cities themselves have more say. Um, but I think this is something that NTIA would do well to make sure it, ad- it adopts your reading of it and um, passes that along so that states can can do this themselves and then suffer the consequences as they may. Right. I, I totally agree. And I, I want to echo what you said. I'm not advocating to, to ignore the rural unserved and underserved areas. Just like you, I want service to those areas as well. But we do have to address the significant issue in more urban areas and particularly where it might look on paper like there is 25-3 service. So they look served, but it's really not there or it's not affordable. Um, you know, there's a lot of issues to address in more urban areas. And so we, it, NATOA filed comments with uh, NTIA. Terrific comments. Um, thank you. I really um, like And those. other local governments did too, making this point like, hey, The law doesn't require just, um, you know, unserved and underserved deployment projects to rural areas. It's much broader than that, even if people don't want to talk about that. It really is. And we need to embrace that or we are going to have, as you said, more people left behind than we end up serving. So now we have another tricky issue, which is that um, many of the places where I think we would see this money used um, to address uh, the poverty in in low-income public housing type facilities – uh, are cities where they may be making public investments, and the number of states have made those uh, either uh, quite difficult or impossible. And so Congress uh, 
told NTIA that states are not permitted to prohibit cities from getting access to these funds or cooperatives, although you and I will talk more about the cities here. Um, and I think NTIA has a challenge on how to read that um, because the question I get from the press is often, well, can NTIA preempt state laws? And and it's tricky because I feel like Congress is sort of like, well, you got to overrule state laws, but we're not going to give you the wording that would allow the Supreme Court to agree that you clearly can preempt state laws. So um, I think you had a you have a really nuanced way of thinking about this that is um, far superior to anything that I came up with. So I'd love to hear you explain it again. Yeah, um, because it's not a preemption argument. You and I were quoted in the same article and you kind of took the preemption angle and said, I don't think the statute preempts. I agree with you. I don't think the statute it preempts state laws that restrict municipal broadband. And we never argued it did. Um, I think there was a, an attempt to confuse the issue that is somewhat succeeding, unfortunately. This is not a preemption issue. We're not saying that the the federal government is trying to preempt state laws. What we are saying is the bead um, language precludes states from making local governments ineligible and not just local governments. It says, I I don't have the language right in front of me, but basically local governments, co-ops, private companies. There's a whole list. It includes private ISPs. You can't make any of them ineligible. So there has to be, hate this phrase, a level playing field for, you know, anybody to come in and try to persuade the state that they can do a deployment project well. And I should be clear on this. This restriction is only for deployment projects. That's subsection FH I mentioned which talks about restrictions on use of funds under F1 for deployment projects. This is only there. So it's only in deployment projects that this has to happen. What we're saying is NTI very clearly has to disapprove is the language in in the statute, any um, state initial proposal or final proposal that doesn't comply with the use of funds. And we just spent all this time talking about the use of funds, which if you're going to use them for deployment, you have to follow the prioritization we talked about, you can't exclude anybody from eligibility who's in that list I just mentioned. You have to make sure that a recipient um, provides low cost options. There are things that have to be done. And so our point is, if a state can't really let a city, for example, participate in the grant program because their law restricts the city from using the funds for broadband deployment or other uses allowed under the statute, then they can't comply with the bead requirements. So what we suggested, instead of having NTIA just say, okay, well, this state can't comply because they don't let local governments build broadband networks, we thought the better option to make sure states got that money was to allow a state to say, yeah, we have this law, but we're not going to enforce it. We are going to let local governments be eligible for deployment fundings just for this purpose. Their law is still there. They -hmm. can enforce it in every other context. But if they're going to take this federal money, then they need to comply with the federal conditions that are attached to it. So that's not a preemption issue. It's, it really isn't. It's a, it's a condition on federal funding, which the federal government is allowed to do within certain parameters. It's certainly allowed to say, if you're taking the money, this is how you're going to use it, which they've done here. And I think that that restriction um, or condition is quite clear. You, you can't exclude people. You can't pick and choose who gets to apply. And, and that's in part 
because of this issue that like I feel like the people who are uh, arguing that states should be able to continue ignoring that are the ones who are also shouting about the government not wanting to pick winners and losers. And so like this is an issue where like the the federal government is like states can't like arbitrarily pick winners and losers as to who's going to get this money and a bunch of people are saying, "Oh, we think states should be able to do that even though they're constantly accusing other people of doing that with malintent." Now, the thing that I think is is important to include here is that if a state's program, if their plan is not accepted by NTIA, they don't lose the money. The money is actually still available to be spent in the state. It's just that it would go directly to localities via a process that NTIA will, will have to develop. Yes. And I'm glad you made that point because that's an important part of the issue. I, I think those arguing that states can just ignore this municipal broadband thing and just say, hey, our state doesn't allow for municipal broadband, but we want these grant funds anyway. Congress built in this this contingency plan where if a state didn't apply for funding or wasn't approved for funding, then it would go to local governments or um, a coalition of local governments if they stepped up and wanted to step into the shoes and be the eligible entity. And if that doesn't happen, then it gets reallocated to all the other states that are participating. That makes it clear to me that Congress expected that if states aren't able to meet the grant conditions, there's another way out. It's not a it's not a rubber stamp from NTIA. You've got to agree as a state that you're going to comply with these conditions or the funding's going to somewhere else. I mean, I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, but this argument that if a state has a municipal broadband preemption, they can just ignore it and take the grant funds. I mean, how far does that go? Can they redefine unserved and underserved as well and just decide oh, to like reallocate the money That's differently? That's brilliant, yeah. <laughs> can, they, can they say, you know what, we don't want to have low in, we're not going to make our subgrantees have low income programs because that feels like rate regulation or we just don't really want to get involved in that. I don't think anyone's arguing that. But for some reason on the muni broadband front, they're arguing, oh, well, the federal government can't tell the state that they have to comply with that condition. Why not? That's why I think the, the preemption issue has been brought in. That's where I think they're trying to confuse the issues, because I agree, as I said at the outset, if Congress is going to try to preempt a state, they need to do it really clearly. They didn't mm-hmm. do that. They're not trying to preempt, but they are saying you have to use these funds in a particular way. Right. And this is something that I, I've said before, which is that it is ridiculous to me that I'm going to be subsidizing broadband in Tennessee because the state of Tennessee does not want to allow Chattanooga to solve that problem, you know, in the areas around Hamilton County and in a really efficient way, which it could do without any taxpayer help. Instead, my taxpayer dollars are going to be going to like help some other company build it in a less efficient manner to charge more and deliver less. That That's absurd. That's not how my taxpayer dollars should be used. Yeah, I guess. And I, I was going to make that a similar, I guess, the flip side of that point earlier, which is if municipal broadband is as bad, I mean, that's always the argument, right? That municipal broadband, is they've tried, they've mostly failed, they're not good. We know that's not correct. But if that was correct, what is the harm of letting these inept communities apply for grant funds? They'll just get rejected because they can't do it. Right? Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess like, why are you so concerned about municipal broadband um, options being up for the money? If it really is a, an inferior choice, then it's not a big deal to just let them apply. Right. I think we I think the concern is that municipalities might have a better shot at the grant funds for exactly what you were saying, because some of them like Chattanooga maybe won't even need the grant funds, but if they took it, they could very quickly expand and do a lot of good that, you know, expand the good that they're doing now. Um, I think that is more of the concern is that you're going to, that is going to um, help 
prove the, the municipal broadband case, you know, because mm-hmm. if that wasn't the concern, why even put up a fuss? So we're going to move to our third topic, which is this issue of franchise fees. And um, in particular, because this could be a, a multi-hour discussion in and of itself to really get into the weeds. But I think I, I would just set the agenda by saying that that some telecommunication services are taxed in different ways and some are not taxed at all um, based on federal law or and or state law. Um, and it's really quite complicated. And there's a big issue right now with localities trying to figure out if they can recover some of the revenue they're starting to lose from um, how certain services that are taxed are, are declining in terms of gross receipts. And so, um, you know, there's this issue of like whether certain other ter- types of video streaming can be taxed. But what I wanted to put to you is whether or not um, kind of everyone would be better off if we would just get rid of all the complication and just say that if you have telecommunications wires in the public right of way, they're going to be taxed at a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a level that is, you know, more or less easy to understand, <laughs> I guess. All right. So I'm going to take your your question that tries to simplify a complex issue and make it more complex. You're a lawyer. <laughs> that's your right. <laughs> by saying, you know, in many, I would argue, and in many courts have agreed, and some have not, um, that when you are charging a fee for use of public rights of way, it's not really a tax. It's a fee. You're 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 being you're collecting compensation more akin to rent. There is a Supreme Court case that calls it rent for use of public property, which is different from a tax. And the reason I make that distinction is um, there, I think there are pros and cons to the simplified approach of just, if you've got stuff in the rights of way, you're gonna pay a fee. We don't care what kind of services you're providing. I love the simplicity of that. In a, in a really bad world, uh, a cable or telephone company would have to negotiate with every single person that it wanted to run their lines uh, over or under the ground. And that would be a world in which we did not have very many networks because it's impossible to do. And so local governments make this easy by uh, administering property in certain areas that we call the right of way and and make it a a simple way to get into, a comparatively simple way to get into, um, uh, to be able to build their networks and to deploy other kinds of networks like um, uh, water and sewer and things like that. So so like when you're saying it's a fee, it's absolutely right. Like there's, it's unimaginable that there's any other way for these companies to build their networks than to use the right of way. And it's a tremendous luxury that they get to do that because they wouldn't have businesses otherwise. There's nothing I can add to that. (laughs) You said it exactly perfectly. Yeah, I appreciate you setting that up too. I'm so used to talking about it that I, yeah, forget about the... The rights of way isn't an evident um, idea to everybody. <laughs> right, <laughs> I get right. That. So that's why that's why they have to pay anything, and then and then and I feel like there's two issues, right? One is like there might be like a set schedule for like having a, something in the right of way. Another is that that schedule might be a percentage of revenues of something. So I think that might be what you are leaning toward. Well, yeah, I mean, under the Cable Act that's been around since 1984, cable companies have to pay a fee of, we call it a franchise fee, of 5% of their revenue from their cable service as, the, you know, in exchange for using the, the local rights of way. Um, and I should say, just because I have to, before the act, local governments were already doing this. It wasn't like the federal government came in and said, okay, cable companies, you're going to pay. Local governments were already saying, you want to use our property, you're going to have to pay. And then the federal government came in and said, okay, how about we regulate this across the country? Um, Maybe a small distinction, but as a local government person, I have to make it clear that, you know, use of the rights of way, it has always been managed at the local level. And when we talk about state and federal laws, they're, they're generally limiting 
I would call it organic authority that's already there. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the state has to authorize it. It depends on where you live. But as I mentioned, I think the idea of this this uniform fee that everybody pays, whether you're a cable company or a broadband company or an old phone company, if there's anyone left still calling themselves an old phone company, um, it's so simple. I do love the simplicity of that. It would get away from, well, wait, the cable company pays 5%. And in, in some states, nobody, broadband providers, phone providers pay nothing. Some states, they also pay 5% or 7%. Um, you know, it's, it's all over the place in terms of, and sometimes you can get cost recovery only, whatever that means, which is really hard to calculate for a variety of different users of the rights of way, right? So um, I love the simplicity of it. And here's where I, I start to have problems with it. Uh, I mentioned the Cable Act. Cable Act also, I would say, codified what local governments had been doing before the act, which was requiring other customer service or community benefits, one of which is public education and governmental channels. So these are access channels. Um, sometimes when I describe it, I talked about Wayne's World. I think maybe that is getting to be too outdated of a reference. No way. <laughs> no way. It's, it's timeless. Um, but I mean, that's an access, you know, like a public access channel. What's probably more relevant today are the government access channels, particularly during the pandemic when local governments couldn't meet in person um, and were trying to find ways like they needed to do emer- take emergency steps but the council couldn't meet because they couldn't be in the same room together. And how do you get around that? And how do you make it public? You have to let the public in and, mo- you know, that's kind of a law, I think, probably everywhere. So in a lot of places with government access channels, that's how they did it. They were like, OK, well, you're going to be on the access channel and we're going to let people call in. And this is how we're going to make this whole thing public. And it was great. It really worked out so well. I th- and, and also just with the, the loss of a lot of local newspapers and a lot of local media, public education, government access channels, I think, are having a resurgence in terms of their importance. That is something that is required in a cable franchise agreement. So the permission to use the public rights away from a cable company also includes that obligation if the local government wants to include it. If they're offering video services. Yes, right. Yes, thank you. If they're a cable company under the old school definition of cable, absolutely. And there's also build out obligations too in in those types of agreements. I think you could lose those in this generic, like we're just doing a a tax scenario. Um, There's also, you know, if you just think of the old incumbent local exchange carriers um, and other types of utilities that have provider of last resort obligations where they have to serve everybody. Some states have customer service standards that apply to certain types of services, but maybe not others. So I think the, the tricky part is how do you retain those you know, consumer protections and customer service obligations and particularly build-out type requirements? Cable companies are the major providers of internet now because of the build-out requirements in cable franchise agreements over the last 40 years. Right. Like 85, 90% of Americans have cable because local governments said, you're not going to pick and choose. You're going to deliver it to everyone that hits a certain density standard. Exactly. And so if we decide we don't care what services are being provided, I I love the idea, but it's got to come with these other the ability to impose these other obligations so that people can't pick and choose where to serve and they can't, you know, have customer service practices that are deceptive. I mean, there are other statutes that deal with that, but being able to deal with it at the local level is super handy. I was going to say local officials are going to get the call one way or another. The question is just whether they can do anything about it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, so that's where I have a hard time with the simplified model. And so the reason at the outset I want to talk about fees versus taxes is because one one possible way to do it is, is, you know, we continue to have this fee for use of the rights of way, 
but then there's a separate taxing authority and you can say, okay, you're charging, we're going to charge you the fee. That's just your rent for using the rights of way. And on top of that, we can impose a tax that we are going to use to fund build out or uh, to fund, you know, some customer service type things that are going to help to fund our peg channel. I mean, that might be a way to be able, I mean, I know that sounds terrible. Like I'm saying, well, let's do a tax into fee, but, but I'm just saying like, maybe that would be a way that you could actually retain some of the, the good that we got for the, the community through these franchise agreements, but under a more simplified plan. Right. The model that comes to mind to some extent is uh, the 5G deal that San Jose struck with AT&T, where um, there are no build out requirements under uh, law. And uh, AT&T basically, I believe, agreed to pay more uh, to locate in higher um, wealth areas. And then that money went into a fund that was to help um, increase digital opportunity in lower income areas. And so the city had the flexibility to be able to do that and to strike that deal. Yeah, I think they had just even a, a a pot of money that was set aside by the companies to to do that. Yeah, and that's kind of what was my inspiration for that idea is if if providers don't want to directly do these community benefit <laughs> services, um, then maybe they pay a little bit more and let the local government take care of it. But that's that's an option that I can uh, you know that might be worth pursuing, and the, the San Jose example is a good one. Excellent. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been excellent. I, I think that, you know, you said you were going to make things a little more complicated. I think I've seen people make things more complicated and, and I don't think you did that. So oh, I'll have to try harder next time then. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it's wonderful having you on. I appreciate your time today. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. Follow MuniNetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at MuniNetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.